So today we're going to talk about the Gospel of John. Um, we're going to do Luke next time so we can do Luke and Acts together. Um, John probably, in my opinion, <coughs> was uh, one of the later books to be written, not only of the Gospels, but of all the uh, New Testament books, somewhere in the range of 90 to 110 A.D., and Scholars used to date it much, much later even than that because of uh, the high Christology, the doctrine of Christ as uh, being an aspect of God. Uh, you know, we're kind of well on the way to the doctrine of the Trinity with the Gospel of John. Um, and also it's kind of connected in that way with uh, the ideas of Gnosticism and um, Greek philosophy. Uh, but in 1920, a piece of papyrus uh, came to light, uh, which was labeled P52 it, for papyrus number 52. It's owned by the John Rylands uh, Library. And it is a, just a little fragment of the Gospel of John from somewhere around 125 AD, maybe as late as 175, but much, much earlier then people had dated the gospel. So uh, that pushes the date somewhat back. It, it's unlikely this is the original, but um, if so, then the latest date would be 125, but it's probably a copy. So there had to be time for it to be copied and spread some. The place, um, somewhere maybe like Ephesus, um, Scholars tend to think that the audience was Jewish Christians and the Gentiles, I guess, associated with them who are at that time being put out of the synagogue. So once the temple fell um, and once the Romans conquered Palestine, the Sadducees disappeared, the, uh, the um the priests disappeared, the zealots, of course, uh, put to death, and um, even the Essenes seem to have been wiped out. And so uh, the only two sects of Judaism that had really spread beyond Palestine uh, were the two that focused their attention on the synagogue as opposed to the temple. And these were uh, Christianity and what became rabbinic Judaism, what had been the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees generally had the upper hand in these synagogues and started putting out the Christians. And so John has a um, very strong reaction to this sole remaining group of, uh, of uh, Judaism. And so there's a lot of condemnation about the Jews where earlier Gospels tend to uh, condemn the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now we're just condemning the Jews in general. Um, and I'm pretty sure he had in mind the Jews who were uh, putting them out of the synagogue and opening them up to the possibility of uh, Roman persecution. Uh, the Romans um, tended to be, for an ancient empire, fairly lenient toward the people they conquered. As long as they paid their taxes and didn't have a revolt, uh, they gave them a lot of local autonomy. Uh, but as a rather conservative people, they were suspicious of new religions. So if you could establish that you were an old religion that had always been around, uh, then the Romans let you do your thing. So... Um, the Christians wanted that imprimatur, that stamp of approval, that they too were legitimate uh, heirs to Judaism. And when they lost that fight, um, then it made their life a lot harder. And so there's a lot of um, stuff in the book of John, the Gospel of John, about that group, so that the Gospel of Love comes out sounding surprisingly anti-Semitic at times. Um, and people who didn't know that history did use these passages to justify anti-Semitism. Um, 
you know, the idea that the Jews killed Christ and uh, uh, a lot of the uh, um, anti-Semitism of the last couple of thousand years uh, comes partially from these passages in John. Um, if you recognize that it was more of a political situation and that he's not condemning all Jews everywhere for all time, but upset at a particular set of people that were uh, seeing to it that they lost some of their rights in the political system of the day, then it kind of uh, can mitigate against the damage passages like that otherwise might do. All right, let's move on to the beginning of John. Oh, did we do the date? Yes, we did the date. Hold on, sorry. Yeah, I think that was it. Um... I want to get into the Logos, in Archaean Ha-Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I have um, put into your uh, lecture for the day several passages I got from other people um, talking about different phases of the idea of the Logos, um, here's this elevated Christology. Uh, Christology means the doctrine of Christ. From Christos added to it the word, oh my goodness, logos. Any word with logos or logic uh, is based on this ancient Greek word logos. And um, scholars in recent years, many of them have stopped trying to translate Logos, and they just bring it over into English, the argument being if we can handle words like um, karma that come from other languages, then we can uh, handle words like Logos, because Logos can be translated word, but that, you know, is a very reductive kind of translation. So um, it it's easier to get at the complexity of the idea if we keep the you know the term the logos instead of just saying word so today we'll talk about the logos and not only is this very highly elevated uh, christology the word was god the word created the universe um you know, this is pushing us toward the doctrine of the Trinity, which will develop over the next several centuries. I believe the word Trinitas as a term to describe the triune God was coined by Tertullian. Uh, so it'll take a while for them to work out all the details of the Trinity. So if we Look at Greek philosophy. Um, John, like I was saying, uh, seems to be, to me, a fusion of Greek philosophy, uh, Jewish mystical theology of Philo, and um, the, I, you know, the the events uh, around uh, the life of Christ. So he is. Uh, Diving into this deep um, philosophy, and it's funny the the Gospel of John of the four Gospels has by far the simplest vocabulary. It's very easy to translate compared to most of the other books of the New Testament, and way easier to translate than most of the other Greek I've struggled with, and yet. The thoughts here are so profound, so there's a simplicity of language, um, and yet a very deep system of thinking that goes on in this book and in the other Johannine literature, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So, um, in the beginning was the Logos. Logos, as a part of Greek philosophy, goes back to Heraclitus, He's one of the earliest Greek philosophers, and uh, Heraclitus is the philosopher who said you never step in the same stream twice because the water has moved on. So every time you step into a stream, 
it's a new stream it's a different stream and so this gets to his fundamental insight that everything is changing all the time or almost everything there is a hidden structure to the universe a hidden order that order is the logos so once we have you know contemplated the logos then we will be able to see the underlying structure behind all the change that's going on around us all the time and plato does some stuff with logos as well as aristotle but i'm skipping forward to stoicism which was uh pop well it was started by zeno uh couple of hundred years BC I don't remember his exact dates but um Stoicism was especially popular uh, in Rome even more so than it was in Greece because Romans already had this um, deep appreciation and devotion to their duty so um, doing what you're supposed to do was a deep part of their ethos to start with so when stoicism came along uh there was that in the roman that said ah yes this is what i've been waiting for uh so it's very much focused on it's called deontological uh, ethics is based in doing your duty and so figuring out your duty and doing it is a strong component of stoicism but if we go back before even we get to that um stoicism believes that the universe is ordered by logos uh, that it is the source of all order and it brings all things into being so you can see how this is starting to overlap with what john would say uh, later logos is the source of human reason and intelligence and, uh, part of uh, the ethical system is to behave in accordance with the logos you might say logically um, it's very much the, the stoic philosophy is very much the source of the vulcan philosophy on star trek so uh, everything's supposed to be rational and logical but not necessarily following the narrow principles of logic uh, the rules of logic laid down by aristotle um, even in Vulcan uh, Stoicism, uh, religion, if you will, there's a deeper mysticism behind it. Um, and it's a frequent insight of the Stoics that most people don't get it. Uh, it it's a message that's out there, uh, but people are so caught up in their emotional experiences uh, that they become an irrational um, so the logos is there if you're willing to listen to it and it's open to anybody one of the most famous stoics was marcus aurelius one of the best emperors another famous stoic was epictetus who started life as a slave so um it could come from whatever background and get the good out of stoicism also they have the idea that the logos is eternal it's going to last forever and they believe that there will be this giant conflagration at the end at ekpyrosis uh, we usually just call it an apocalypse um, where fire will devour the universe and it will all start over and unfold exactly the same way next time that it did this time and they even identify the logos with uh divinity with god and there was a kind of philosophical concept of one god who's eternal and unchanging and they often understood the greek and roman gods and goddesses as metaphors rather than as actual beings now as we move forward to about the time of Christ there's Philo of Alexandria who is a Jewish theologian and mystic but also 
a Greek-speaking philosopher. And he combines uh, ideas from the Jewish scriptures with ideas from uh, uh, Greek philosophy. And so, when you look at Genesis 1, um, in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, then it goes on to say, God said, let there be light. Uh, the verb here is devar, uh, which means to say. But its noun form, devar, uh, means word. And so when you speak or say something, uh, you're using your words. And so God is creating through his logos, if you translate it into Greek. Um, so God creates the universe through his speech, through his logos. So it is, the logos is uh, God's creative power uh, and God's wisdom. The two are the same. Uh, the supreme being is God. Next down is his eternal wisdom. And then the, uh, that you can also call the logos of God. So, our earthly wisdom is an attempt to copy God's celestial wisdom, which is very close to what the Stoics are saying. When you behave logically, you're behaving in accordance with the Logos of the universe. Um, and it is rational because it follows these universal laws. You can see a lot of this in early uh, Enlightenment scientific thought. Um, around the time of the American Revolution stuff people like Ben Franklin would say so by by meditating on the Logos and living according to the Logos we become like the Father God um, and this is Philo so um, He's being influenced, of course, by Judaism along with Greek philosophy. So he believes the Father is the supreme being, and the Logos, his chief messenger, stands between the creator and the creature. So it not only creates us, but um, communicates with us. So the Logos is neither unbegotten nor begotten, as are sensible things, things we can sense, uh, it was always there, but it's always being created by God. So, in a sense, when we would say God the Father is first, but he's always been generating uh, the Logos all along. So there wasn't a point before he was generating it. It's very mystical. Um, so we get wisdom from the divine Logos. Uh, Logos is the cupbearer of God. And the immortal part of the soul comes from the divine breath of the Father as part of his Logos. So we are ourselves created by God's Word now, just, you know, when we're born, as when, the same as when the initial creation took place. So God's creative power is taking place all the time. So there's a really close line between this and John 1. So let's move to John 1. Um, in the beginning was the Logos. And I like following in this um, tradition that's starting to come along of not trying to translate this. Um, to say in the beginning was the word, it means so much more than simply word. So if we keep it Logos, then it allows for the full variety of the original Greek meaning. Um, just like I said, uh, if we can comprehend uh, karma and uh, other uh, mystical words from other traditions, we can do the same with Logos.
So, in communicating in Greek uh, to at least some of the people in your congregation are educated. Ephesus is right across from uh, Greece proper. And so this idea that somehow um, you can keep Christian thought and Jewish thought pristine and separate from Greek thought uh, seems to me to be a little unrealistic. Um, the Greeks had been around for 300 years at this point. Uh, speaking Greek, people in Judaism were talking to people who were Greek, and so there's a lot of back and forth with ideas um, so that Greeks, as we've talked about before, could see uh, Jehovah as kind of a fill-in for Zeus. They kind of worship Zeus over there in Palestine, and so when they wanted to rededicate the temple, they rededicated it to their analogous God, who was Zeus. So, same thing happens with Judaism, that they start picking up on these philosophical ideas, as we saw Philo do, and he made no bones about it. He was in Alexandria. It's the site of the best uh, philosophical minds of the day. This is the Harvard of the ancient world, and so he's, you know, um, He's explicitly taking up these Greek ideas, as is, uh, for me, John. Um, the idea of a human being somehow being uh, divine and eternal with God, uh, really not much of a Jewish concept there. Uh, to get something like this, uh, you have to have these centuries of uh, Greek mysticism um, behind it as well. So it's a combination of thoughts from different places to come up with the idea that there is this trinity, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, the prologue of John, uh, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, here is this idea of eternal, you know, the eternality. Of Father and Son, that they've always been together. Um... So the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So it's saying that Jesus uh, is the Word, the Logos. Jesus is the Logos. And that creation comes through him. So in Genesis 1, we have... God doing stuff. We also have the Spirit of God hovering over the water. And so John is trying to bring uh, this third character into the story of creation. So this isn't about the birth of Jesus, like the uh, birth narratives in Matthew and Luke. This is about the birth of the universe. The cosmos comes through the logos. In him was life and the life was the light of men. So Zoe is the word for life. Phos, like photon, is the word for light. And so the life in the Logos is the light of us. And the darkness, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So comprehend can mean understand, but it can also mean overcome. Uh, and that's true of the original Greek as well in this verse. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So we'll get back to John in due course. Uh, the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but sent to bear witness of that light. So there was some thought in the ancient world that... John the Baptist was 
the Christ, the one that they were waiting, the Messiah they had been waiting for. So at one point in the book of Acts, you have find disciples of Jesus coming across disciples of John the Baptist and kind of bringing them into the fold. And this was a historical process as well that took some time. So all the Gospels point out that John the Baptist is a precursor to Jesus and not the Messiah himself. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So there is a potential universality to this Logos as well uh, that gives light to every person, but some people don't receive it. He came unto his own, as in own received him not, but as many as received him to them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So, let's see. Alright, um, just read the rest of the material in the notes and actually, you know, you could write a research paper on this, a book on this, spend a life on this, and never run out of material because uh, this is really deep stuff, uh, some of the deepest theology we have uh, in the Bible. Um, and again, very simple language. Uh, this is some of the first stuff you translate after you finish up your intro Greek class. So, as we look at the structure of John, uh, we see it divided into two major sections, and I've included an outline uh, in your notes as well. Uh, the first major section is the book of signs. And these are the signs Jesus gives so people will believe in him, and the rejection by his own, or the Jews, as sometimes you'll see it, uh, put forward. Not all the Jews, but the ones who are in charge. And again, analogous to the ones who are putting the Christians of John's day out of the synagogue. And then the second part is uh, typically called the Book of Glory, which covers the final messages of Christ and then his death and resurrection. And that picks up in 13.1 and goes all the way to chapter 20. So you can see compared to the other Gospels, John's got a real focus on the last week of Christ. Uh, there's stuff from other times in his life, but this is where basically half of the book is. So uh, what are the signs? Uh, the first sign, ironically kind of uh, encouraged by his mother. Uh, who tells him there's a problem with the wine at the wedding, and that is there's not enough wine at the wedding, and goodness knows you don't want a wedding without wine, uh, unless you're Baptist like I, uh, me, and we did not, we had punch, and it wasn't the fun punch either. Um, it was the kind of, well, it was not alcoholic, at least it wasn't supposed to be. So, uh, the first sign is changing the water into wine, and this is in Cana. Um, the two other signs in the area, uh, in this period, um, the cleansing of the temple, which has to be down in Jerusalem. So uh, he's made a trip to Jerusalem, pilgrimage as Jewish people were supposed to do, and um, coming down from Galilee was a pretty good trip for that time, and uh, people would go together in large groups. Um, and so he gets to the temple. Remember the large uh, area, the court of the Gentiles, it's not prescribed by Moses, nor does Moses say what you're supposed to do with this area. And one thing you could do is sell overpriced shekels and animals for sacrifices. And uh, this um, 
I mentioned the other day that shekels weren't being made at this time, and so these are like tokens at, um, at an arcade that you have to buy. And so the tokens stay there and just cycle over and over, and then you pay for them, and then somebody else pays for them, and, and somebody else pays for them. So the income, um, you know, the tokens, this is the gift to God. On this other stuff, we kind of keep um, a lot of it. So the Sadducees who ran the temple were fabulously wealthy. They had a lot of money. Um, but while this is a good... Um, clever use of all this space, uh, Jesus sees that it's preventing people from praying. And so he wants to cleanse the temple of money changers and bring back prayers. Uh, more prayers, not so many shekels, please. And then um, a third sign is the healing of the nobleman's son in 446 to 54. And we've seen similar stories like this in the other Gospels. Uh, Tabitha Cumi, uh, remember. Uh, so Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So uh, Jesus, what's special about this one is uh, Jesus didn't feel like going to Capernaum, so he said, go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word. So there are these signs, some people believe, some people don't, but some people do. Um, and he went his way. And when he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. And by that meaning, the fever's broken, he's feeling better, he's uh, acting, you know, like a regular kid, not a sick kid. Uh, and so, um, distance um, miracles add a bit to the um, to the immensity of the the miracle, uh, as does turning water into wine, which is inanimate, because, you know, if somebody lays hands on you, you might feel better because they laid hands on you, but that's not the same case with water. John 4. Let's look back at the beginning in the uh, story of the woman at the well in Samaria. And the story shows kind of the radical nature of Jesus' ministry, one that um, neither Jews uh, nor Samaritans nor <clears throat> most current-day Christians follow. So um, it's quite out of step with the bulk of a religious sort of people. Um, Jesus is passing through Samaria. Now, Samaria was part of the area that had been uh, in the northern kingdom. And after the uh, northern kingdom was destroyed, people didn't just go away. Um, these were the descendants of uh, the Jews who had been living there before. And they still worshipped Yahweh. Um, they only accepted the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but in that they're like uh, the Sadducees, who also only accepted those as being canonical. Um, they also worshipped 
uh, in a mountain up there rather than at Jerusalem, and that's part of the debate. The woman wants to get into kind of a theological debate. Um, and uh, so Samaritans are not totally Gentile, but sometimes the hatred is all the deeper because of the closeness of the belief. Uh, and they're a lot like Jews, but uh, they're, and kind of therefore the Jews reject them all the more. Uh, also, he should be rejecting her because she's a woman, or at least not having anything to do with her proper um, religious uh, guys uh, did not uh, have dealings with women in public, uh, especially ones they weren't related to. And then furthermore, she was a woman of rather ill repute, uh, not a prostitute exactly, but she had been married a number of times, and she was shacking up this time. So <clears throat> for all those reasons, um, Jesus should have, should, quote-unquote, should have shunned her as the proper religious people did at the time, and yet he asks her for water. Um, now, she's, you know, Jewish men come through our, all the time, and none of them ever ask her for water because she's a woman. Um, and this starts the conversation. If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. So here's this idea of living water. Um, and she's like, well, what is this? Uh, Jacob dug this well. Are you greater than Jacob? And the basic implication is, of course I am. Uh, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Um, you know, the water I give is um, kind of a, a new relationship with God. Uh, it's not the physical water that she's thinking about. Uh, if you've ever read that essay salvation biographic autobiographical essay salvation by langston hughes he's 12 almost 13 years old at a revival and he can't get saved because he's waiting to see jesus everybody has said that they're going to see he's going to see jesus and being a kid he literalizes the metaphor the woman at the well also literalizes the metaphor well i give me some of this water and i'll drink it but jesus is trying to move the conversation to something deeper and more spiritual. Um, and so, uh, she tries to get goad him into a theological debate about where's the proper place to worship God, the temple at Jerusalem or the mountain in Samaria. And he says, uh, anywhere you are. You know, uh, I'm not going to get into that with you. Wherever you are, um, there you can worship God. He does say salvation is of the Jews. Um, you worship what you know not because they're kind of half-caste Jewish. They aren't quite enough Jewish. Um, but once the time of salvation comes, uh, then everybody will worship God in spirit because he is a spirit. It's a pretty deep stuff. Again, uh, John's noted for uh, his deep theology. All right, moving along. In chapter 5, there's a man who has an infirmity. He's, um, he's lame. And Jesus gets into the controversy uh, of... Can you heal on the Sabbath? And in uh, strict Judaism, um, the belief was that you can take life-saving efforts on the Sabbath day, which was back then Saturday, uh, Friday at sunset, Saturday at sunset is the uh, official Jewish Sabbath. And in that period of time, there are all these rules and regulations that you have to follow so that you can keep the Sabbath holy. For instance, in uh, buildings with a lot of Jewish, uh, observant Jewish people uh, that have elevators, 
and there's a special Sabbath setting, which all day long goes up a floor, up a floor, up a floor, all the way to the top, and then down a floor, down a floor, down a floor, all the way to the bottom. So it's a way of, um, because you can't push buttons on the Sabbath day. Um, and there, you know, just, you probably couldn't count all the rules that have been made up for watching, for observing the Sabbath. So, um, for Jesus, it's, um, you know, the Sabbath is for God and it's for doing good. And I'm going to do good by healing this man today. But that's part of the controversy between him and the Pharisees, who were the ones who kind of elaborated these strict rules about how to observe the Sabbath. It's not that the Bible says thou shalt not heal on the Sabbath unless they're dying, literally dying. Um, it's more a matter of the interpretation. They're putting a hedge around the law. What's the word for hedge? Hold on, let me look that up. I remember that from somewhere. Putting a hedge around the law. I don't know what the term for that is. Um, but Kumrah. Um, so it's uh, to keep you, like a woman should not look in a mirror on the Sabbath day because she might see a gray hair. If she sees a gray hair, she will be tempted to pluck it out. And if she plucks it out, that's reaping, which is forbidden on the Sabbath. Um, so Jesus doesn't go along with all that. Um, his interpretation is much more benign um, that, okay, let's do good on the Sabbath. But here again, uh, in verse 19, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he seeth the Father do, for these things soever he doeth, and also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and sheweth him all things that he himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. Um, so this idea of Jesus and the Father being one, um, this all goes back to that opening passage about the Logos. And that he is the Logos. Okay, chapter 6, and I believe in chapter 5, well, the rest of it is, um, the rest of the passage is his, um, is his message. Uh, chapter 6, the next sign is, um, uh, spectacular sign it's a feeding the feeding of the 5,000 and this um, this miracle occurs in several of the Gospels let's see which all they're in Matthew Matthew 14, Mark 16, Luke 9, and John 6. Yes, so it's in all four Gospels. Um, which is kind of unusual. A lot of stuff winds up in one, two, or even three, but very few things walk wind up in all four. And um, so this is a miracle of God being able to multiply food to feed people.
And afterward, he uh, walks out to the boat. This is walking on the water, which is another one of his uh, spectacular miracles. Uh, but then when they come around and want more, he says, um, Moses gave you not the bread from heaven, but my father giveth you the true bread from heaven. So again, he's speaking in metaphors. It's almost like the parables where some people will be drawn in. Some people will be more confused and put off. Um, and uh, especially folks that want to follow Jesus around and have him feed them every day. Well, wouldn't that be nice? Um, and he's saying, no, you know, um, the thing I'm trying to do is get you to a new relationship with God where you drink the water that he gives, you eat the bread that he gives. And that bread is a spiritual bread. Everyone which seeth the Son and believeth, and this is verse 40, believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews murmured at him and said, I am bread of heaven, which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then he saith, I come down from heaven? So here we get into a debate that will end up with the church deciding that Jesus has two natures human nature and the divine nature um fully god and fully man is the way you usually see it um and he's the bread of life in other words if you partake of this it will give you eternal life where manna was just regular human style food that you eat and then shortly later get hungry again and then you need more um Okay, let's move on over to chapter 9, where he heals the man born blind. And here's an interesting uh, bit of Greek. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither had this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. Now, uh, there are two kinds of Hena clauses um, that Hati. Hold on. John 9. Oh, here we go. Hina. Yes, it is a Hina. So it can be a result clause or it can be a purpose clause. So purpose is this happened in order that he might be, that the works of God should be manifest in him, which would say that God struck him blind when he was born so that someday he could be a great story, which seems a little much. The other way to interpret it is, is the result of this. So we don't know how this happened we're not getting into that the result of this happening is a chance to heal somebody um also notice the deuteronomic code at work in the disciples uh, the idea if you're suffering that's because you've sinned well if you're born blind what kind of sin can you do before you're born um so maybe it's his parents' sin that he's being punished for? He says, don't worry about this. This is an opportunity to heal somebody. So let's get to doing the job we're supposed to do. And so he restores his sight. Um, this leads to an encounter with the Pharisees. And it gets worse and worse. Again, we see the... Um, Well, actually, they call them the Jews. The Jews show up. Well, some Pharisees. Um, but they quickly move on to the Jews, casting him out of the synagogue. And this, again, reflects the situation of the church John was dealing with, um, so that they were getting cast out of the synagogue. So uh, Jews come across in a very negative light sometimes, because there were some Jews that cast them out. It doesn't mean... 
God hates Jews and wants, you know, Hitler to do his, what he did. So, um, you have to look at these texts in their original context in order to avoid, um, in order to avoid coming to a dangerous misreading. Uh, and then finally, um, the greatest sign, the ultimate sign, is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So here's a man, not only dead, you know, Jesus has done that before, but it seems to be people who have just stopped breathing. Um, this is a guy who's born, been dead for three days, and his sisters say he stinks. So the decomposition has begun. How are you going to restore him? But he's able to do so, which rather than winning his enemies over, makes them all the more determined to kill him because he's raised the dead. Now what's he going to do next? And so that moves us on over into chapters 13 to the end, which is his kind of farewell address to the disciples, his uh, death and then resurrection. And he says stuff, again, stuff that grows out of that introductory. I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. So uh, Jesus arises from the father the way the Logos arises from Yahweh. Um, and then other people, arise, uh, the rest of us arise from him. He gives, he created us in the first place, but then he gives us this new creation, this new birth. Uh, this being born again. So, the death of Jesus is, um, you know, similar to what we have in the other Gospels. There are some distinctions between John and the synoptics. Uh, some of it around the dating of the exact day that, and which would have something to do with the year that he died as well. So um, you can go, you know, you can get really deep into this stuff. Um, we have a Joseph of Arimathea. Um, taking the body of Jesus. Normally, in a crucifixion, uh, you don't bury the body. You uh, leave the body exposed as an example to people who would think to do the same crime. So um, it's similar to putting heads on pikes, except this is the whole body, and you leave them, uh, you know, you may remember... The story of Spartacus, where you had this slave rebellion and they were crucified and left hanging up and down the road into Rome. So as is the usual story, um, Mary Magdalene uh, comes to uh, tend to the body, which was woman's work back in ancient uh, Palestine, where the women would uh, take care of the dead. Um, and then she finds the tomb open. So Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. So we've added a disciple. Um, where normally it's kind of Peter doing this, uh, here you have probably, you know, supposed to be the author of the book, maybe John um, being the disciple Jesus loves. And, uh, and that's the tradition. It's hard to know for sure, but, you know, when you don't know something, you go with what the traditional answer is. And... Peter goes in first, but then the beloved disciple comes in and believes, uh, which is kind of the point. 
uh, getting to a place where you believe in Jesus, uh, this point of having faith. Um, did Nick, um, let's see, hold on. Yeah, Nicodemus shows up, which is his coming out as a follower of Christ. Remember, he came to Jesus secretly in chapter 3, but now he comes back publicly, you know, saying, I want to claim the body. Well, I mean, it's secretly for fear of the Jews, but it's public knowledge with Pilate. So uh, it's kind of a letting some people know, okay, I'm ready to say I believe in him because I'm willing to take the body and bury it. Um, so Jesus, well, the disciples go back, and then Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Um, woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast born, have borne him a hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said unto Mary, said unto her, Mary, and she turned herself, and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. And Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not. Really, the better translation is, Don't cling to me. So uh, it could well be that she hugged him, but um, he doesn't, you know, he he uh, he doesn't want prolonged contact, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But I go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my father. And your father, and to my God, and your God. So, he comes to the disciples. This is where um, he sees the disciples, except for Thomas. And Thomas doubts. So, there's this, you know, it's not unbelievers we're talking about. These are committed followers of Jesus, but they still have trouble having faith. We saw that with Matthew as well. Some doubted. Um, and so when Thomas sees Jesus the next week, he says, uh, my Lord and my God, which is as high a confession of who Jesus is as we find in the New Testament. So it's not insignificant that he says that. But Jesus um, notes, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Um now, 21 is weird because 20 could be the end of the book. Um, some scholars speculate that the book went through different revisions over time uh, under different authors. Hard to know. Um, but 21 is something of an epilogue where um, Sea of Tiberias is, I think, the same as the Sea of Galilee. Um, you know, emperors like to name things for themselves. <laughs> um, and so um, Simon says, I'm going fishing. They don't have any food. Jesus says, uh, cast the net on the other side. And they have a huge haul. And so they recognize him. So there's something different about Jesus after his resurrection that it's hard to know, you know, immediately recognize him. Um. He builds a fire, they fix food, and then kind of the point of the story after this uh, quiet, you know, nice breakfast is um, to restore Peter because he has fallen. He denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus asks him three times, uh, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said, Feed my lambs. Saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Now, he doesn't say, This time I love you more than them. Um, I love you more than they do. He just says, You know that I love you. He saith unto him the second time, again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? 
So it's not, do you love me more than these, but do you love me at all? Peter was grieved because he saith unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus said unto him, saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldst. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. Uh, and he was talking about his death, which is in contrast to him saving his life through denying Jesus. One other thing about the uh, questioning of Peter uh, by Jesus um, that was uh, pointed out to me years ago in a class by uh, Dr. Ari Glaze. He was, um, I took a class in the Passion of Christ, the Death of Christ, and we looked at the Death of Christ in all four Gospels. And when we got here, he noted that Jesus starts off by using the word agapao, which means to love, and really... Christianity added the idea of Christian love. It really didn't, wasn't that widely used in generic Greek. Um, and so this idea of Christian love, agape, um, as being kind of a step above this selfless, um, eternal love. Um, and then Peter answers back by saying phileo, which is the more common word for love. The other one was eros, which has to do with sexual love. Um, Phileo has to do with what we normally mean by we love something. Like philosophia means I love wisdom. Um, and so Jesus says to him, do you agape me? Peter says, I phileo you. I love you with that word. Um, Jesus asks him again. Where is it? Oh, here we go. Um, do you agapas me? Do you love me? And he says, you know, hati philo say, that I love you. Finally, Jesus says, do you phileis me? Do you love me phileo? And it could be that he's saying, do you love me with this agape love? And he's saying, I can't claim that, but I'm claiming that I do love you with this philos. And then finally, Jesus says, well, do you even philos me? So it starts from, do you love me more than these? Do you love me, agape? Do you philos me? Do you uh, love me with that love? And this is when, you know, Peter's kind of grieved. He knows he's failed and he feels guilty. Uh, and how can he prove it? And Jesus points then to the time that he will prove it far off in the future when he dies for Jesus without being willing to, without this time denying Jesus in order to get away. So in the end, it's kind of like Red Badge of Courage. The next time in, he will fulfill his um, um, his um, commitment. Now, let's look back at something different. It's chapter 7, the last verse. Where is that? Here we go. 7.53. And I included some images in your notes that you should uh, follow along with uh, from the Greek New Testament. And uh, you'll notice that below the Greek, there is the there are footnotes. And these footnotes are the textual apparatus, um, which have to do with... Um, Collating ancient manuscripts, you take uh, these various manuscripts and put them side by side, or more likely you have to write down the differences and um, uh, because you don't get to see all the manuscripts all at the same time. They're all over the place. And then you compare them and try to figure out which is the best text. And they give an A reading to omitting this because the earliest texts go over. Um, you see P66, P75, the Hebrew letter Aleph, which is from the Codex Sinaiticus. 
Uh, a in vid means apparently. These are unsealed. These are all capital older. P is papyrus. The unsealed um, capital letters are Greek in all caps from uh, parchment. And then the numbers have to do with uh, various uh, lowercase uh, manuscripts, which were written later. So basically, you start from the earliest and go to the latest, and the best manuscripts don't have this in here, which doesn't answer the question of, is this authentic? Which it seems to be. It's a very early story. Like the woman at the well, it cuts against the tendencies of both Judaism um, and Christianity. You know, Christians invented the scarlet letter, uh, if you remember from your high school and maybe some of your college reading uh, Hester Prynne, uh, caught in adultery, and, and she must wear this scarlet letter around because she's a fallen woman. Um, so this uh, continuing uh, opprobrium that they heaped upon her, and the church is as legalistic as anybody else. So why would they make up a story... Why would anybody make up this story? It seems to be a memory. Um, and if you think back to Mark, what would he have been using? He would have been using pages like this, people scribbling down um, their pages. And uh, then something like this could have circulated. Nobody actually put it in a book, but uh, when they, in the original writing of the four Gospels. And this not only is put in... John, but it also shows up in place in various places in Luke, and that's what the rest of the text textual apparatus uh where do we put this? you know, and it's a great story. it needs to be in here, but where do we put it and so they would hunt around for a spot if you take it out, the text of John flows much better, so you can imagine at some point. This, uh, they call it the floating pericope, because a pericope is a passage you read in a lectionary, and it's perfect for reading in church. And so it got passed down, passed down, didn't get included in the Gospels, but it's a very early story that was held on to. And you can imagine a leaf being inserted into the leaves, leaves of a codex, and then somebody comes along, wants to copy it, and says, ah, I think it must go here because this is where the leaf is. Uh, got torn out, but I'm going to write it in right here uh, where it seems to fit to me. And so um, that's how it got put in. And then other people came along later and said, well, it doesn't look right. Here's a better place for it because it's such a good story. You can't take it out. Because it's a story of Jesus uh, beating the self-righteous uh, people at their own game because here's the law. It says she should be stoned, and therefore shouldn't we stone her? And okay, well, if you're without sin, you can cast the first stone. And everybody knows they have sinned. At least that particular crowd knew it. I've met people that would have flung that stone. Um so great story, and it belongs in the Bible. We don't, you know, probably wasn't it part of any of the four Gospels initially, and it just, you know, made its way in by sheer power of its, um, you know, the beauty of the story itself. All right.